You're listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast. My name is Matthew, and as your host, my mission is to help you discover who God is and what it means to live as a citizen of His kingdom. Greetings, Finchwood Podcast listeners. This week, we are continuing Season 3's Practical How-To Guide to Christianity, and this week's topic is How to Worship God. Honestly, I think that this is a question that a lot of even the most seasoned believers haven't really asked themselves. You see, when we become Christians, we tend to just accept whatever practices and rituals we see in the communities that we inhabit, and we assume that that's simply the way that Christians worship. Many of us can't even really offer a coherent definition of what worship really is, and I think that's a tragedy because we therefore end up being limited in our worship of God by our lack of imagination. It's worth saying before we get started that in some ways this episode is a continuation of last week's topic, which was how to find and join a church. So many of our worship practices are wrapped up in what we do as a community that this is going to end up almost being a part one and part two situation with this episode being the part two. However, because worship is something that's supposed to permeate every aspect of our lives, and I'll talk more about what I mean by that later in the episode, this week's topic is much bigger than just its corporate aspects. Still, if you aren't embedded in a community of believers, a lot of this won't apply to you, or at the very least, it'll be difficult to put into practice. So I do recommend also giving that episode a listen and doing what you can to find a church that you can worship along with. Now, as usual for this season, I'd like to start with a working definition of what worship is. This is one of the most vaguely overused words in the vocabulary of modern Christianity, so I think we would all benefit from a quick look at what we're even talking about here before we start to delve into how we can do it and how we can do it well. Originally, the English word worship comes from an old English word, worthship. It's in exactly the same word family as worthiness, worth, worthy, and so forth. And that's a key to understanding what worship really is. Broadly speaking, it's any activity or even an attitude in which we acknowledge and honor God for his infinite worth. Because he's good, he's majestic, he's the king of the universe. Because we love him for all of those things and out of gratitude for all that he's done for us, we display and reflect his worthiness back to him as a gift. That's what worship is something valuable that we give to God because he deserves it. Now, for the record, I'm going to say the same thing here that I've said in the past three episodes. Worship isn't something we give to God so that he will do some favor for us like a miracle or so that he can love us more or even so that we can experience something special about him. Basically, this isn't the Godfather. It's not like we do God this worship favor and then he owes us one. So often we try to manipulate God into doing something for us, whether it's I need healing for this, or I need this to happen, I need a new job, any of those things. God wants to do those for us already. And when we try to twist his arm as if we have to, really the only result that we can expect from that is that we've insulted him and we've insulted his goodness. No, this is purely a gift that we have the great privilege of offering back to God free of charge. The only effects that we can really expect to come out of it are, first of all, that God can enjoy it, which is a good thing in and of itself, 
because we love him and because we want to please him for his own sake. And the other reason that we worship is that it transforms us. In the process of contemplating his glory and by humbling ourselves by putting him first, changes happen in our own hearts that are, frankly, amazing. So it's worth it, but it's not like a vending machine that we can put in so many hours of worship and expect him to do something. Now, over the thousands of years of human history, as a species, we've come up with a lot of very interesting ways to show worship to someone, particularly if that someone is a god. And those range from very obvious and simple things all the way down to some complex and, I would even say, outright wacky practices. The simplest forms of worship have to do with our posture, like kneeling or bowing, clapping, dancing with joy, waving our hands in the air, even smiling. All of those can be acts of worship. We can also display God's worthiness through our words. For instance, the familiar word hallelujah is actually a Hebrew phrase that simply means give praise to God. And so saying it is an acknowledgement that God deserves our praise. Beyond that, we can certainly tell God about his attributes, which by the way counts as both worship and prayer. When I say to him, God, you're good, you're the king, and I trust you, I'm worshiping God in that moment, having that conversation with him, because I'm giving him the glory that he deserves. And that also works for other types of communication too, whether that's print or other visual mediums, art, singing, dancing, sign language, anything at all that you can do to communicate God's worthiness, those all count here. Other methods of worship that have been devised by Christians over the years include burning incense, eating a special meal, lighting candles, and a vast array of different ceremonies. Of course, each group has different traditions that they've imbued with meaning, and the specifics of what those traditions look like will depend on what kind of church you are a part of. You also have the ability to establish your own practices because most of what we do as a community to worship God can be replicated on a smaller scale while you're by yourself. On that note, though, I will say that there's something special about when we worship together as a group. I've talked about that quite a bit in the previous episode, but it applies here as well. Basically, my advice is to try to do both as much as possible. Join a community that worships God together, but also build a lifestyle of private worship that you can engage in even when you're not meeting with other Christians. And that brings me to the biggest category, the main thing that most people think about when they hear the word worship. And of course, I'm referring to music that we sing to God as Christians. Whatever the genre is, most churches have a period of time during their gatherings that's specifically set aside for the purpose of singing songs of praise to God. And many of them call that activity worship. Now, look, I'm not here to be the language police, especially since that period of time is technically worship. You can call it that if you want. However, the challenge that these churches inevitably face is that when we narrow our definition of worship to one activity that we do only once a week, we miss the point that everything we do during the rest of that church meeting is also meant to be a form of worship. From hugging a friend, to taking communion together, hearing the message, all the way down to getting lunch at McDonald's after the service is over. Worship is an attitude, it's a posture of the heart, it's a lifestyle whether or not we're with other Christians at the moment, and whether or not we happen to be singing. 
The idea is that those can saturate and permeate the fabric of our lives so that all of it becomes an offering of praise to God. Many forms of worship also involve some degree of sacrifice, giving up something useful and valuable as a symbol that the one receiving our worship has an even higher value. For instance, the practice of fasting could be a type of sacrifice. Now, that topic, fasting, is a complicated one. Complicated enough, in fact, that later in this season I'm going to do a whole episode on it. But for now, I think it's enough to say that instead of eating lunch today, I could abstain from that as a form of worship to God. Basically, through that action, I'm telling him that he is more important to me than lunch. In the first few books of the Bible, we see a lot of references to various kinds of livestock being slaughtered and then burned in a fire as a way of showing one's devotion to God. And in the heavily agricultural setting in which those first books were written, that makes a lot of sense. Cattle, sheep, and goats were the most valuable things that a person could own, so sacrificing one, losing the economic advantage that that animal or its milk or its wool could bring to your family, that was a considerable loss. Now, in modern-day terms, I don't have any livestock to offer to God, nor do I think that that's what he's really looking for. But what I do have is a paycheck— and I allocate a portion of that to serving God and his people rather than whatever else I could easily find to spend it on. Now that is a sacrifice. And when I do that, it's an act of worship. Another thing we might sacrifice to God as an offering is our time or our energy. Serving others, volunteering, even doing a good job and showing integrity in the things that you were already going to do, those are all worshipful acts when they're done with God's glory in mind, because they bring him honor. Now, one very crucial point that I definitely need to make here, God is honored by our worship, even when it costs us very little, but it's also true that he's honored even more when there's a noticeable cost involved. He's delighted to receive such noble and generous gifts from his people. But, to be very clear here, what he cares about more than the sacrifice is always the person making it. He's not interested in receiving any type of worship that would cause you harm, or that could bring harm to anyone else for that matter. Even among the forms that were prescribed in the Bible for those people at that time, there was always an exception for the poor. They had the option to sacrifice something much smaller, so that they didn't have to bankrupt themselves to buy a goat or whatever. What we can learn from that, today, is that if God cares about our livelihood more than our sacrifice, he certainly cares infinitely more about our lives and our physical and emotional well-being than about whatever sacrifice we would think to bring him. Where he does want us to give things up, frankly, it's always for our good, and it's usually in moderation and only for a period of time. Outside of the Jewish and Christian traditions, especially in the ancient world, but even leading up to today, we do see examples of, for instance, human lives being sacrificed, or people harming themselves or carrying out acts of sexual violence, as offerings to this or that God. And there were a few times in scripture where God's people adopted those practices to the point that, at least in one instance, they actually burned their infant children alive in a furnace, which is pretty much the worst thing I've ever heard of in my life. The thing is that some of them went into that thinking that they were doing what God wanted. And his response was basically, why in the world would you ever think that I want this? 
This is evil and I'm good, and this will never and can never bring me any glory. So, just to be clear once again, in case anyone needs to hear this, God is not interested in violence as worship. The same goes for extreme forms of fasting that can cause damage to your body, or any of the weird stuff that people got into in the Middle Ages where they would mutilate their bodies or whip themselves or do all kinds of gruesome acts, thinking that they were worshiping God in the process. He doesn't want that. He wants goodness, and the best way we can honor Him, honestly, is to flourish. I hope that part makes sense, and if it doesn't, or if you have any questions about any of that, please look in the episode description. Find my contact information there. I would love to clarify this. Anyway, before we move on, I should at least mention the fact that when you worship God, at some point, somebody is going to come along and tell you that you're doing it wrong. Different groups have different definition of what the most proper way to worship God is, And as long as we're all able to coexist, then having those different traditions isn't a problem. In fact, it's kind of glorious. It's like this tapestry of different colors and flavors and sounds all woven together that all gives God the most glory. Still, especially when it comes to the songs that we sing, there will always be someone who idealizes and venerates the sounds and lyrics of a previous generation usually longing for that sweet time way back then when their parents or grandparents were in charge. And the thing is that those people absolutely have the right to enjoy and even prefer those songs over newer ones, but it's also absolutely incorrect to say that one generation's songs are better than another's. And I have three reasons for being so confident that I can say that in such strong terms. First, Usually, those people only know the good examples of that previous generation's songs because all the bad ones were lost to time. We stopped singing them. Every generation writes new songs to God, and a few of them are really good while the rest are okay-ish at best. And over time, we weed them out. We stop singing the ones that have faulty theology or don't really say much at all or just aren't aesthetically pleasing. And what we keep is the gems that were hidden in all that dirt. This generation will be no exception. We have some duds, and we have a few great songs that I'm confident the church will continue to sing for generations to come. Second, I have to point out that there is no musical form that's more or less holy than another. Some people, for instance, like the pipe organ. But there was a time when it was a controversial addition to church services. It was the newfangled contraption that displaced Gregorian chants. Then after that, the piano gradually came to be more prominent than the organ, and the same thing is going to happen to today's keyboards and drum sets. I don't know what the next style of worship is going to be, but it will also be replaced. I can only hope that my generation doesn't grow up to defend our guitars as more spiritual instruments than whatever our children's children play and sing along to. Third, and this is more the general point that I'm trying to get at here, There really aren't any definite biblical rules at all about what our music should be like, or our church services, or how we worship in general, for that matter. There are a few groups within Christianity that teach what they call the regulative principle of worship. This is a guideline that says that God is only interested in forms of worship that are explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Under this reasoning, for instance, some groups outlaw musical instruments during Sunday morning worship because none of them are mentioned in the New Testament. Others maybe won't sing anything to God other than the book of Psalms because that's the only thing that Jesus' followers are mentioned as having sung. 
The problem with that approach is that there's also nothing in the Bible saying that only these forms are allowed. Also, it's a pretty self-defeating philosophy once you consider that church buildings and professional pastors and observing Sundays as a Sabbath at all are also absent concepts in Scripture. What we have here instead is a case of optional traditions becoming an unbreakable rulebook that people have bound themselves with. If you want to use the forms, words, and practices of ancient Christianity, that's a great idea. At the very least, it's a great idea to use the worship of others that came before us as a starting point. But I don't really think we're supposed to stop there. We're supposed to keep growing and innovating new ways to worship God. As long as your practices honor God, as long as they cause his people to have a deeper love and reverence for him, and if they faithfully convey the truth of who he is and what he's like to other people, so long as you're not actively sinning or disobeying a direct biblical command like don't murder or don't commit adultery, then however, wherever, and whenever you choose to worship God in whatever kind of way that you can find or even imagine to do so, basically, knock yourself out. There are no wrong answers here. If you prefer to worship God by singing passages out of the book of Psalms in Elizabethan-era English on a Sunday morning in a traditional church building without any musical instruments while wearing choir robes, that's great. On the other hand, if you want to worship God by doing cartwheels down Main Street in polka-dotted overalls, all the while talking in plain English about the ways that God has been kind to you, that is also equally great. And don't let anyone tell you that either of those is holier than the other just because their tradition says so. So I guess this is the part where I give you some homework, and it's simply this. Open up your mind and your heart to branch out into new forms of worship. If you don't already, focus for the next week on how you can turn your whole life into worshipful praise to God. Also, please take a second to leave us a good review on your podcasting app of choice. And meanwhile, I'll see you in two weeks for the next episode in this season, which is called How to Deal with Sin. That should be a very interesting topic, to say the least, so I'm excited about it. I hope I'll see you there. Meanwhile, thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to the Finchwood Discipleship Podcast, conversations for people who want to be more like Jesus. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe now and consider sharing it with your friends. For more information about this episode's topic, or to continue the discussion, please consult the show notes. See you next time!